to begin today with a question. And that question is this. Do you remember where you were on September 11th, 2001? I think for most of us who were alive on that day, our memory is seared and we can remember where we were, what we were doing, who we were with. I can remember my experience. I was getting up, getting ready for my senior year in high school, and uh, I was listening to the radio, and uh, there was a, a message that came over about something that happened in New York City. I turned on the TV and watched as the second tower was hit. Later that day, I can remember sitting in my government class of all classes, first period, and watching as the, the towers fell. And, and those, those memories are seared in my mind. Uh, but as I talked to people uh, who had experienced other days of tragedy like that, they re recounted similar experiences. If you were alive when the Challenger exploded in the 80s, I can, I've heard stories about the memory of that. If you were alive on that day in 1963 when JFK was shot in Dallas, the same kind of experience is recounted on, on each of these days there there is this kind of profound impact of those national moments of of tragedy and loss and, and what we saw in the days after September 11th is that there was a surge in in interest in faith and religious matters across our country the, the data showed that up to 25% increase happened in attendance in services like this. Churches were filled on prayer meetings and at Sundays as people um, took steps in this direction. But as 2001 ended and 2002 started, the data shows is that that, that interest, it, it waned. It surged in the short term, didn't lead to, to long-term interest. It didn't lead to long-term change. And, and, and what we know more broadly, and we especially saw it with September 11th, is that short-term interest only becomes long-term change through genuine repentance. It's one thing to say, hey, I'm going I'm to do this for a few weeks, or that the feeling is kind of driving me to do that. But the short-term only translates into the long-term. It only sustains when there is genuine repentance. And that's what we're going to see today as we continue our series this summer that's called Relentless. Uh, throughout this summer, starting last week and going throughout the summer, we're walking our way through a section of the Bible that is often overlooked. And for many of you who do read your Bible, it's often the most dusty section of your Bible. It's this section between the books of Hosea and Malachi that we call the minor prophets. They're not minor in importance. They're minor in length. And, and in these short books, we see the heart of God, that he is relentlessly pursuing his people. Last week, we read through the book of Hosea. We taught about it last Sunday. We read through it last week. If you read it, you know it's not the easiest read. It's, it's a little bit tough. For those of you who, who, who pushed through that, I want you to know this week, Joel is only three chapters. So it's way easier. If you're here in the room, you didn't get a copy of your reading plan last week. We've got extras out in the lobby. If you're watching online, you'll find a link to those on our worship resources page. But this week, we're going to dive into the next book in the Minor Prophets, the book of Joel. I want to give you a little bit of background on Joel. The, Joel is, is a Hebrew word, and it, it means Yahweh is God. The Hebrew language does not have vowels, so the word for God, Yahweh, is Y-H-W-H. 
and that's the meaning of Joel's name. We also know that Joel uh, was the son of Pethuel. That's all we know about Joel. Unlike Hosea, where we knew about where he came from and where he lived and his family, his wife and his kids, we know very little about Joel. It's all we know really is his name and who his dad was. We, we also aren't totally sure when Joel happened. Uh, part of my prep for this message this week was looking through the scriptures and looking through commentaries and recognizing just the varied opinions on when Joel happens. It's, it's not, I think, really clear when Joel occurs. It could happen anywhere from 800 to 500 BC, which is a fairly wide period of time. It's like saying, I don't know when, you know, when, when this person lived, they either could have lived in 1776 or 2021, you know, this period is longer than the history of our country. I want to remind you that in in stating that, that that it's important to know that the minor prophets are not listed in chronological order in the same way that your Bible isn't listed in chronological order. Uh, If you read through the Bible in chronological order, actually, you don't even finish the book of Genesis before you have to hop a bunch of books forward to the book of Job. So if you're new to the Bible, I just want you to know the Bible is grouped by theme, the type of literature it is, not by the order in which it happened. So... As we dive into Joel today, it's a little bit of background. And here's our big idea if you're taking notes. The big idea is this. This is the central idea, I think, of, of Joel, that knowing the heart of the one you offended influences your willingness to repent. When you know the heart of the person you have offended, and in the book of Joel, we're talking about the people uh, offending God, it influences your willingness to repent. And we're going to see that again and again through these three chapters of Joel today. So as we go through the book of Joel, we're going to look today at three parts of the book and the three lessons that come from that. And so if you have your Bible with you or you have a digital Bible, you can open up. I encourage you to open up to the book of Joel chapter 1. If you're new to the Bible, that's awesome. Uh, a lot of people who are watching today have never read through Joel, so you've got lots of company. And the book of Joel is located between two books, Hosea, which we studied last week, Amos, which we're going to study next week. If you open your Bible to Psalms and head towards the back, you'll find those three books in order. And beginning in Joel chapter 1, this is what we read. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, son of Pethuel, and that's literally all you're going to get about Joel, right there in verse 1. Hear this, you elders. Listen, all you inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this ever happened in your days or in the days of your ancestors? Tell your children about it and let your children tell their children and their children the next generation. This is a great verse for Family Sunday to describe how we pass on faith. What the devouring locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten. And what the swarming locust has left, the young locust has eaten. And what the young locust has left, the destroying locust has eaten. You're not going to be surprised. The first part of Joel talks about a past plague of locusts, and we'll describe those lovely bugs in detail in a second. But the lesson we get from this first section of Joel in Joel chapter 1 is that some suffering in our lives is self-inflicted. Now, the suffering that that we go through in life, it, it comes from various sources. Some of it is because of the decisions of other people that we experience suffering. Sometimes we experience suffering just because we live in a fallen world where sin is real and brokenness happens. But some of the suffering we experience is self-inflicted. It comes as a result of our own decisions, and we see that here in Joel 1. And one of the themes that we see throughout this book, it's actually present throughout the Bible, but it's especially present here in Joel, is this theme or phrase, the day of the Lord. 
And the day of the Lord, in, in, in short, basically means that there is a day coming and there are days when God allows judgment and accountability for the sinful actions of people. And in the book of Joel, we, we see Joel describing that happening in the past, that happening and coming in the near future, and then that happening ultimately in the end as God judges and then restores all things. And in, and in the chapter 1, we see the day of the Lord concerning this past plague of locusts. Just by a show of hands, does, does anybody in the room hate bugs? Anybody else? Just like they just give you the willies? Uh, you know, I, I feel like God has a sense of humor. And part of how he is humorous is how he prepared me for this message. Monday night, I was working on my sermon. Everyone else had gone to bed. And I was sitting on my couch by the glow of my laptop. Nothing else was on in the house. And all of a sudden, on my neck, I felt this, you know, some of you, I can see you squirming, you know, and maybe you're on your couch at home and you're kind of squirming too. And, and I just felt this little creepy crawly and I, I slapped it real fast and I knocked it off and I, I heard in the dark the, the hard shell hit my side table and I could hear the little legs like scraping on there trying to get up. And, and I'm like jumping around, like throw my laptop. Luckily it survived. And, and thank God on the side table next to me, I literally say thank God because I had a hardback copy of the Bible, which took on another purpose on Monday night. It became my weapon through which I killed that jumping bug. And I, I, I'm bashing it on the ground with the Bible. And finally it gives up its life. And I go to the kitchen to get a Kleenex to clean up the Bible and clean up the mess. And I find another bug on the ground. So as you might imagine, the exterminator was at my house on Friday, you know, kind of making sure this doesn't happen anymore. But I feel like it was God preparing me for this message because chapter one in Joel is all about a past plague of locusts. Now I know we have cicadas in, uh, in Prescott, but, but locusts are far bigger and they're far worse of a problem than cicadas. When, when a locust swarm comes into a region, it can wreak havoc. Now the desert locust lives in the area of the Middle East and Northern Africa in the desert environment. And there are so many locusts that live in that area that if they were to spread out, they could cover one-fifth of the Earth's surface. Today, like not back then, today, one-tenth of the world's population is vulnerable to a food shortage due to the actions of locusts. When locusts swarm in just one half square mile, 40 to 80 million locusts can be present. And the problem with locusts is their hunger. Locusts can eat their entire body weight in one day. Think about how much you weigh. Can you imagine eating your whole body weight today? And they can do this day after day. Can you imagine that today you just go crazy at your Memorial Day barbecue and eat your whole body weight, and then tomorrow go to another barbecue and eat your whole body weight again, and the same thing on Tuesday and the same thing on Wednesday? Locusts, when they're swarming, a swarm of locusts can go through 423 million pounds of food in a day. And so in Joel chapter 1, a swarm and plague of locusts have come through the land and completely destroyed it. They've eaten all the crops, they destroyed all the trees, they've ripped through all the grapevines, and the people are grieving. 
They're grieving because of this profound loss. They don't know where their food's going to come from. They don't know where their income's going to come from. They have no idea what the future holds. And according to Joel chapter 1, this plague of locusts is not just a result of nature. It's an expression of God's judgment on them for them not keeping their covenant with God, for their sin, for the injustice they've done. God has allowed these locusts to come and wreak havoc on the people. And in Joel 1, as we go on from verse 4 and a part I didn't read, there's three different groups that are described as grieving. There's the drunkard who's grieving because there's no wine, because there's no grapes. So the drunkard's like, man, nothing left to drink. The farmers are grieving because they had nothing to harvest and nothing to sell and no way to provide for their family. And the priests are grieving because there were grain offerings and offerings that involved olive oil, which comes from the things that the locusts ate. And so the whole nation is going through grief and Joel begins to help them think about how they can process the grief they feel because of this destructive horde of locusts. And while I don't want us to walk in the path of the people in Joel 1 that brought this horde of locusts, I think we can learn from them because there is something that these people do well that we don't, and that's grief. As a nation, we don't grieve well. If you remember the last time you knew somebody who lost someone, or the last funeral you went to, or maybe the last time you were in grief, what you discovered is that the people around you don't grieve well. Sometimes even the people in church don't grieve well, and they actually hurt and don't help when you're going through grief. They say and do all sorts of things that are counterproductive. We're seeing right now as a nation how we don't grieve well. This past week, I I watched a video of a man go crazy on his Southwest flight and knock out his flight attendant's two front teeth. You go, where does that kind of anger come from? And I'm not a psychotherapist, so I'm not going to psychoanalyze the person. But I will tell you that many times in the last few months, as we've seen people incredibly angry, I think there's reason to believe that there's a deeper problem. Grief. Because when you're unwilling to face the real source of your pain, it's like filling up a Tupperware container where you try to push it down and the mess comes all the sides. When you don't grieve and you just press that down, it comes out in all sorts of messy and destructive ways. And friends, when you don't grieve, life becomes a series of ungrieved losses. Because even when you follow Jesus, it doesn't protect you from loss. Following Jesus is not a get-out-of-life-free pass from pain, loss, betrayal, suffering, hurt. If Jesus himself was crucified, why should we expect that we're going to make it through life without pain? But if that's true, we have to learn to grieve those losses because if we cannot grieve, we cannot be healthy. And so these people are called by Joel to grieve, yes, the loss of their crops, but more profoundly to grieve their sin. And only in doing that do they become healthy and whole. 
I, I realized myself this year that there were some places that I didn't grieve well and I didn't process pain well because what I found this past year is I, I began to hate opening my email because my email was a source of grief. Multiple times I got emails that completely destroyed my sense of normalcy. Your kids are going home. No, they're coming back to school. No, they're going back home. No, they're going back to school. You can meet where you want your church to meet. No, you can't. Yes, you can. No, you can't. I had to write emails and send them to people that introduced some of those same realities. My email became the place where I experienced the people who liked what I was doing and didn't like what I was doing or who used to like what I was doing but now hated what I was doing. Who thought I was following God and who thought I was following, I don't know, whatever. And I began to realize that the reason that I hesitated and would even hold my breath when I opened my email was because it was the place through which that grief came. I read a study this week that said that over three quarters of Americans breathe more shallowly or hold their breath when they're reading through their work emails. Because often it's a place that introduces that kind of pain into our lives. And yet, Sometimes God allows things to come into our lives like he did the locusts in Joel 1 for some sort of larger purpose. I love what Pastor J.D. Greer says. Any experience of the painful consequences of our sin before it's too late is God in mercy and love trying to wake you up. Now you might say, how could suffering and grief be God's mercy and love? Because suffering and pain and grief right now may be a small thing compared to what we're headed in the future. And maybe God in mercy and love is allowing us to experience some of that now so that we will turn around and not end up there. That's why I called this message Relentless Mercy. Because God in his mercy may be allowing you to experience now the consequences of your sin so that later you don't experience the full consequences and weight of it because you repented and turned around. And this is why I think we have to be careful to not label all pain, suffering, and grief in our lives as completely absent of God's power and presence because sometimes in his mercy and love, he's allowing it in order to wake us up from our slumber. And that's what we see in Joel 1. Joel is trying to say, God is trying to wake you up with this day of the Lord before something harder and more difficult comes. And that's why knowing the heart of the one you offended influences your willingness to repent. When you know that God's showing you mercy and love in allowing those things, it moves you to want to repent because you are grateful that God would give you a chance like that. Second part of the book begins in chapter 2, where Joel says, Blow the ram's horn in Zion, sound the alarm on my holy mountain. Let all of the residents of the land tremble. Why? For the day of the Lord is coming. This is the, the second one. In fact, it is near. And as you read through the rest of Joel 2, we don't have time to do that today. What you see is that there's not a, an army of locusts coming. There is a literal army coming that, like locusts, are going to spread across the land and devour the people. 
because they're not turning and recognizing their sin like they could have after the locusts. Again, Joel doesn't give this whole message all at once. This message is likely recorded and collated as he gave it verbally over time. So then in Joel 2, after declaring this future day of the Lord with this army, Joel says to the people, even now, this is the Lord's declaration, turn to me with all of your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Tear your hearts and not just your clothes. We'll come back to that. And return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and he relents from sending disaster. Who knows? He may turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him so you can offer a grain offering and a drink offering to the Lord your God. I'm going to skip a couple of these here and jump to our first, second point here. So the second part of, of Joel describes a future army that will come on the land like locusts. And the lesson that, that Joel is trying to leave the people, and we would take today, is that God desires our repentance and he longs to be merciful to us. The reason why God allows this thing is that he, he wants to be merciful to us and he wants us to turn in repentance towards him. And, and there's an important reminder here, both for these people living, I don't know, 2,500, 2,800 years ago and today. I mentioned that in that passage, there's a, a reference to tearing your heart and not just your clothes. Your translation may say, rend your hearts and not just your garments. In the day of Joel... When you had angst or brokenness or you were finally recognizing what was really happening and you were overwhelmed with emotion, you would literally tear your clothes. It's what they did before you could just word vomit on social media. You know, it was, it was their way of showing that overwhelming sense of emotion. And, and what Joel is saying is don't just show that physically. Have it happen in your heart. Because throughout the scriptures, we are reminded that we live in a, ver a world that values the external when we worship a God who values the internal. It's not a new phenomenon for people to be shallow. We didn't become shallow 15 years ago when these started coming out. We've been shallow all along. Back in 1 Kings, when King David is selected, what does God have to tell his own prophet Samuel? Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And this is why Joel is saying, rend your heart. Be broken in your heart. Don't just go through a show externally. This is why we see in Scripture that our desire for God is reflected in our brokenness over our sin. Throughout the scripture, we see God saying, hey, you say that you love me. You say that you want to pursue me. You say that you care about me. And that plays out in how you view your own sin. It's actually counterintuitive. The closer you get to God, the more aware you are of your own sin. The further you get from God, the less aware you are of your sin. Because the closer you get to God, the more you recognize the difference between your character and his. Between his holiness and your sinfulness. And 
And what Joel is saying is that when you begin to recognize who God is and you begin to desire him, that should play out in a profound sense of brokenness over your own sin. This is why pride is the greatest symbol that you are not actually growing closer to God. Because if you were, pride would be impossible because you'd see yourself clearly. And this is why Joel says, you know, tear your hearts, not just your clothes. For God, in responding to you, is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love, and he relents from sending disaster. And so the desire then is, Joel's expressing to the people, is that in recognizing who God is, you would then respond in repentance. Now, repentance is a big church word. You're going to hear it for 12 weeks in this series. Because as I said last week, if you hate things repeating, you're going to hate this summer. Because the message is the same thing every single week. I'm going to try to say it in fresh ways. But repentance is really a multifaceted thing. Repentance isn't just, I feel bad. Repentance is a confession with a contrite heart. It's turning away from evil and it's turning towards God. I I got taught when I, I took public speaking, you should never turn your back on the audience. But friends, repentance is not just, oh man, I feel bad in the moment. Or even, you know, you tell the person, hey, I screwed up. It's taking that confession with contrition and then turning away from the wrong direction and then moving back in the right one. And this is why so often we don't take people's apologies seriously because they just stop at the first one. They don't actually change. And this is why, friends, repentance isn't just a one-time act. It's an ongoing practice because the more and more you repent and the more and more closer you get to God, the more and more you realize you actually have to repent of. The longer you follow Jesus, the more you should be repenting. The more you should be owning and recognizing the places where you're not actually going God's way. And and the problem sometimes is that we, we, we think that repentance is something that it's not. I'm going to need a hand. Todd, would you come up here real quick? This is not planned. Todd doesn't know what's happening, but give him a round of applause for saying yes. So some of us get the idea that repentance is like a transaction. So Todd, I'm going to trust you for a second. I'm going to give you my ATM card. I didn't say you could keep it. I just thought you could use it for this moment, okay? So I want you to pretend that I am like an ATM, and I want you to stick that Okay, so you, you put it in there. And what happens when you put your card in the ATM and put your code in? Yay. You get some cash. Now, here's the thing. That's how things are supposed to work at the ATM. But God is not at the ATM. And sometimes we tend to view repentance like an ATM card, that if we will repent, God, of course, is beholden to give us blessings. But God doesn't work like that. Thank you, Todd. And what we see in this text is a reminder of this. Joel 2.14. Joel describes, hey, break your hearts, tear your heart on your clothes. And then he says, this is what happens next. Who knows? God may turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him. It doesn't say if you repent, God has to give you a blessing. 
It doesn't say if you repent, God has to remove all the consequences of your sin. It says, who knows? He may. You may repent, and God still allows you to go to jail for that DUI. You may repent to your spouse of infidelity, and that marriage may still dissolve. You may repent to that friend whose trust you betrayed, and you may not reconcile. Repentance is not a spiritual transaction to God where then God is beholden to bless you. But he may. And we have to resist the temptation to ever reduce our relationship with God to some sort of transaction where we usurp God's sovereignty and we develop the power and then God is beholden to us. It doesn't work that way. But I do want to encourage you with a story that I read this week about the power of repentance. Over a hundred years ago, the world was different in lots of ways. And one of the areas that it was different was what was the dynamic in Korea. A hundred years ago, Korea was one country, was not North and South. And it was a very unchristian country. America was sending missionaries to Korea. And in one of the cities where there was an American missionary, there was a prayer meeting where those who had become followers of Jesus through this missionary's effort had gathered together to pray. And about an hour into the prayer meeting, one of the people attending the prayer meeting, a Korean, stood up. And, and he said, I have a sin that I have, have to confess. God has burdened my heart today. And I have to confess that I have carried an intense hatred to this missionary who came to bring the gospel to us and who's leading this service today. I have hated him. And today I repent of that. Now, because you don't know those people, it may not impact you, but I want you to imagine my friend Todd over here stood up during the service and he wasn't part of the illustration today. He just stood up and said, Scott became our pastor five years ago. And from that day, I have thought that he was a complete weasel. He was the jerk of all jerks. And for five years, I've been listening to his sermons through intense hatred. Can you imagine how awkward that would be in the room? And he said, and I repent of that today. Well, if that happened, everybody in the room would be looking at me to go, what's he going to do? And everyone in the room is looking at that missionary. What's he going to do? So the missionary stood up and he said, sir, I forgive you today. And something happened in the room that day where repentance changed things. And, and what was supposed to be a couple hour prayer meeting did not end until five o'clock the next morning. Because that wasn't the only act of repentance, it was just the first. And person after person after person in that community began to publicly repent of their sins as the spirit of humility and brokenness took over that place. And within the next 12 months, over 50,000 Koreans put their faith and trust in Jesus for the first time. At a local college that was extremely unchristian, 
over a series of years, the population of the college who claimed faith in Christ grew to 90%. And today, South Korea is the home to the largest church in the world. And there are missionaries in this country today who came from that country. And all of that happened because repentance took place. And it's this reminder for us that repentance changes the atmosphere. When repentance enters a church or a family or a relationship, it changes the atmosphere. It doesn't remove all the consequences of sin, but something changes. And so I wonder today, what would happen in the atmosphere of your family if repentance entered in? Kids, what would happen in your family if you repented to your parents that you've not been the easiest kid to raise? Parents, what would happen if you repented to your kids for the mistakes you've made in parenting them? Spouses, what would happen if you repented to your spouse? You go, I haven't cheated on them. Have you failed to love them? Have you failed to show grace? Those vows you gave so many years ago, have you held to them? What would happen in our community groups if we shifted from talking about the weather or summer plans to repenting? Friends, repentance changes the atmosphere. And it's markedly different before and after. Part three of Joel ends beginning in the end of chapter two, where Joel says, after this, I will pour out my spirit on all humanity. Then your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will have dreams. Your young men will see visions. I will even pour my spirit on male and female slaves in those days. I will display wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Part three of Joel describes an ultimate day in the distant future where God brings judgment and restoration. And the lesson we take away is that our hope is in God's character and his promises. Be- beginning in Joel 2.28, we see a prophecy that's fulfilled in the early church. On the day of Pentecost, the people experienced Joel 2.28 as people who'd never spoken languages before spoke those languages through the power of the Holy Spirit and people heard in their native tongue in it, standing in a foreign land, the gospel and the first church was started. And God showed that he is a man of his word and he kept his promises. We see this even described in Romans 10, where Paul says, this is the message of faith that we proclaim. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. One believes with the heart resulting in righteousness and one confesses with the mouth resulting in salvation. And here Paul quotes Joel, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We're coming out of a year where all of us have been faced with where is it that we placed our hope? Where is it that we looked for trust and stability? And so many of us have grieved because what we've discovered is we've put our faith and trust in things that are really house of cards that can be shaken and can be destroyed. 
It doesn't matter what your leanings are or convictions are politically. Putting your faith in a political party or candidate is a house of cards. It will be shaken. It can't be shaken. Putting your trust in the best and most elaborate retirement plan can be shaken, will be shaken. No matter how secure you thought your job was or your kid's situation was, it can be shaken, it will be shaken. And what Joel 2 calls us to is in the face of difficult days in the future, we are not to worry, we are not to fret, we are to put our hope in God's character and his promises. And to a people who'd been through an incredible number of losses and grief, This is what Joel says, The Lord will roar from Zion and make his voice heard from Jerusalem. The heaven and earth will shake, but the Lord will be a refuge for his people, a stronghold for the Israelites. And in that day, the mountains will drip with sweet wine and the hills will flow with milk. All the streams of Judah will flow with water and a spring will issue from the Lord's house. Now, if you remember a few minutes ago, the description we read from Joel 1, there was no sweet wine because the locust had eaten all of it. There was no milk because the cows didn't have any food to eat. There was no plenty. And yet the promise of God in Joel 3 is that God's word and God's character and God's promises can be trusted. And that is where you put your hope. I love what Warren Wearsby says about Joel. He says, in Joel, what began with tragedy ends with triumph. What starts out with bad news is good news in the end. Where there's grief in the beginning, there's rejoicing in the end. And and that's the story and the promise that God offers us. That even if we find ourselves in a season of tragedy, even if we find ourselves coming out of a season of loss, then when we put our hope and trust in Him, the the hope of resurrection and restoration remains. This week I was listening to a playlist that I created a long time ago, and I was going through a song, and I I had it, and I was was half listening to it, and something happened, it triggered me to tune in to the words, and on that app you can tap a button and it goes from showing you the album cover to the lyrics. And I tapped the lyrics because I said, I want to scroll back and hear that again. The song's by a man named Corey Asbury. He's the writer of the song Reckless Love that some of us have come to, to love. And in that song, Corey writes, And the story isn't over if the story isn't good. And I believe he's tapping into something here from Joel 3. That when God is writing the story of something, God's not done writing if the story isn't good. Now here's the one thing you have to know about this, because in your head you may be kind of introducing internal reasons why that can't be right. The story that God's writing is bigger than all of us. And the story that God's writing sometimes doesn't even make sense in your lifetime or my lifetime. What God was doing here in Joel 2 and 3 wouldn't be fulfilled until Jesus came or even the life of the early church or even the return of Christ. And we get so caught up in what's happening in our story that we think our life or the the short section that we're focused on is the totality of the work of God. And I want to remind you something that my late friend, Ken Pettis, told me years ago. He said, Scott, don't ever forget that God is not in your story. You're in his. 
And if the story isn't over, the story isn't good because the story that God is writing is bigger than any one of us. And if you try to make sense of what God's doing in this moment in time or even in your lifetime, you may miss it. Because God's story is so much bigger than any of us. And what he's writing in the end is one day a good story of hope, of resurrection, of restoration. We end every message with some next steps, and this one is no different. I've got a couple here, and the first one is multifaceted. It encourages you to do some reflection this week. This week, I want to encourage you to ask yourself the following three questions. And they are, one, what has the pain I've experienced in the last year woken me up to? None of us like to go through pain, but I believe the words of C.S. Lewis are true, that pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. So, so what has God been waking you up to through the difficulties and pain of the last year? And the challenge is, friends, is if, if you don't wake up to it now, you may have to repeat the course again. What is God waking you up to? Two, where do I need to return to the Lord with fasting and weeping and mourning? What is God breaking your heart over and he's calling you to return to him, to repent of? And then third, in what story are you waiting for triumph after enduring tragedy? Where are you trusting that if the story isn't over, God is still at work for his good? Number two, next step, I want to encourage you this week to meditate on and memorize Joel 2, 12 through 13. I know we don't memorize things anymore. We don't even remember our spouse's phone numbers anymore. We just push a button or tell Siri who to call. But the loss that's come through that is that we are not prepared to focus our minds on worthy things. And what your mind focuses on shapes who you become. That's why the scripture tells us to hide God's word in our heart. That we might draw on it when we need it. And Joel 2, 12 and 13 is a great example. Even now, this is the Lord's declaration. Turn to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Tear your hearts and not your clothes. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love. There's that word hesed again we talked about last week. And he relents from sending disaster. When you focus on that, when you meditate on that, when you marinate your mind in that, you recognize that that is the heart of God and that influences your, your willingness to repent because you know that he is showing you relentless love and relentless mercy. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the fact that you do not abandon us in this world, but that you are relentless in your pursuit of us. And as we get closer to you, Jesus, we begin to recognize all the things about us that don't reflect you. We recognize all the things in us that aren't aligned with you. We recognize the places in which our own choices and our own actions and our own lifestyle has, has sown and, and borne the fruit of sin and unrighteousness and brokenness and pain. 
God, we pray that we might have a vision and an encounter with your goodness, that we might recognize that it is even your love and mercy that allows us to feel that in small supply, that we might turn back to you. God, we know your heart is to be unified with us. We know that it's your kindness that leads us to repentance. And so we pray that we might see our circumstances through that lens. We pray that you might be a man of your word, that you'd be worthy of our hope, our trust, and dependence. And we thank you that in a year where so much was taken, so much was shaken, so much was lost, that you remained. We didn't always see it. We didn't always live in light of it. But you have been so faithful. You have been so good. You have been so consistent. And we worship you for that very reason. You are worthy. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.